was enjoying that so much that in my head there were a few more things to go before I was to step up here. So, but I am ready. Don't, don't worry about it. Right. My name is John Arthur. I'm a member here. I've been a member here about seven years. Um, husband to Helen, father to Daisy, and uh, part of the youth team here. Uh, if you don't know me and you want to talk to me, feel free. Um, I'm going to go on at a pace this morning because it's a reasonably lengthy ser sermon, sermon. That's a Freudian slip. Reasonably lengthy service in which there might be a medium-length sermon, right. Um, <coughs> I've been asked to speak in, in honor of the Commonwealth Games, I've been asked to speak in a, in a sort of a kind of look-up fashion um, around uh, some, a metaphor that Paul, one of our greatest thinkers, uses, um, which is to run the race, to run the race and win the prize. Um, and we find him saying um, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, um, to his young protege, Look, you need to keep your head in all situations. You need to endure hardship. You need to do the work of an evangelist, and you need to discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I, that's he's referring to himself, am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Right, so I want to I want to talk about um, Paul and how he uses this rather ordinary metaphor of running a race, winning a race. How does that work? This is the fourth time he's used this. He's used it in three other occasions. He wrote to the Corinthians, a church that repeatedly broke his heart. He spoke to the Ephesian elders, um, telling them that ferocious wolves were going to come in and decimate them if they were not careful. And he wrote to the Galatians church, saying that. If they allowed other people to cut in and, and run their race, they would, have, they would have run their race in vain. In every circumstance where he uses as much as I would like this to be an upbeat sort of, you know, hey, Christian greeting card, let's run the race and win the prize. In every situation where he uses this metaphor, there is trouble. It is difficult. Things are hard. And he wants to encourage people out of that to think about running the race and winning the prize. And here is the advert that Paul gives for running the race. Paul says, um, there is no prize in this life for that race. Run a race that you get no prize for in this life. You need to realize that there are competitors out there, people who are going to try and get you to run a different race and that they are gonna ruin the race for you. So you gotta watch out for them in terms of who they are. So that's a great start. And he basically says, this is so tough that what I need you to do is understand that one of the things that will get in the way of you running a race is your own sin. I'm not going to talk about sin this morning. It's an interesting topic. I'm not going to talk about it. One of the things that will get in the way is sin. So do what I do, says Paul. Here's a, here's a, here's a challenge to meet up to. I beat my body into submission and I make it my slave in order to run this race. That's a good advert for it. And he says to the Ephesians, Ephesian elders, look, here's the thing. My life my priorities, my family, my values, my everything, my everything is as nothing compared to running this race. I consider it worth losing all of that so that I can run this race. It's a brilliant advert for Christianity. It's really good. Paul says to Timothy, here's the thing. If you run this, what is now becoming a rather tough and difficult race, if you run this race, what's going to happen is that you will share in the blessings of the gospel. Unfortunately, the church that you're in probably won't let you do that, and they'll be really grumpy with you and find you really difficult, and you'll be left out in the cold. That's what happened to me, says Paul, but never mind, it will be okay. And he says that what you'll find is that you'll be very eager in the Holy Spirit 
to, to seek the righteousness of your, of your own life and move away from your sin. And you'll be very compelled by the Spirit to share this gospel with anyone you find, um, which is great, but you'll probably become so radical that in the end, the only friend you'll actually have will be the Holy Spirit. But don't worry about that. That's okay. Paul says, you've got to run this race. You must run it. The conditions are hard. The work is unusually difficult. There is no reward for it in this life. And Timothy, stick with me, son, because if you go where I go, if you do what I do, what you'll find at the end of the day is that you are friendless, depressed, lost, lonely, not sure whether it's all worth it, and you'll be waiting your death at the hands of those who hate you because of what you have done. Run that race. If that was the advert for Christianity, would you apply? I'm not, ter I'm not terribly sure I would, but that is exactly how this man uses this metaphor. And we cannot rip it out of its context and say that it's a cheerful wee pickup for Christians to, to gee each other along with, because that's not what it is. It's a sincere reality. And, Paul's, and, and you want to say to Paul, come on, come on, there must be more than this. And Paul would say, yes, yes, there is. And as students of the Bible, if we read him, we know there's more than this. We know it's deeper than that. We know it's fuller than that. We know, but we don't shy away from the difficulty. And so what I want to do is take two other things that Paul says when he talks about this running the race. He says two other things. He says many things, but I haven't got time. So he says two other things. He says to the, um, his friends in the Galatian church who are in a lot of trouble because they're being, they're being sort of hoodwinked into believing things that, they, that, that are not going to be helpful. They're going to ruin their faith. And he says, look, all this stuff, this, this, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. What, what people want you to believe doesn't matter. Circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't matter in Christ Jesus. The only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is faith. I know we'd all say amen to that, but there's a comma, is faith, comma, expressing itself through love. This giant of a man this imposing person, this difficult person who's got no friends for a good reason because he's no easy to be with this guy. He says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. This is the man who wrote 1 Corinthians 13. He knows a little bit about love. We don't often give him credit for that. And to the Ephesian elders, he says, the only thing that matters, the only task you've been given is to share testimony of the gospel of God's grace. This is not the gospel of the Evangelical Alliance. This is not the gospel of the Baptist Union. This is not the gospel of your favorite theologian. This is not the gospel of your favorite charismatic writer. This is not the gospel of anybody else's making. This is the gospel of the grace of God, personified in Christ Jesus. Paul says the only thing that matters is you testify to that. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to take those two from the nine things that I could take, take those two and, and, and fold them together and make them two sides of the same coin and talk about those. And I'm going to do it in two ways. One, I'm going to give you a sort of short sermon that is of the kind that you're used to. And then I'm going to stop doing that. And I'm just going to tell you two stories. And I'm, getting, and I'm going to get you to react to those stories. We know what was wrong with the Galatian church because Paul writes us a letter in which he declares very, very clearly what is going wrong. And they are being hoodwinked by a bunch of people that I'm going to refer to as the belief police. A bunch of people called the belief police have moved in on the freedom that they have in Christ, 
And I've started to say, yeah, 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 we like what you're doing there. But however, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you've got to do as well. And they're trying to put their arm around them and move their belief over here to put it back into mainstream Judaism. And Paul says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and stopped you from believing the truth? Well, it was the belief police. The belief police cut in on them and said, yeah, it's much more complex than you think. There's loads more things to believe than you understand. Come with us. We'll help you believe the right things and move them away from Christ as a consequence of their desire to have sway over what they believed. And Paul says, you can't do that. That's, that's not what this is about. Now, last time I read the church minutes of the church meeting, I did not see a motion by any member here that every man in the congregation needs to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. Praise God for that. So, that's not our problem. And as students of the Bible, we need to translate whether we can read that story and still apply it to our lives. And we can, because the issue is the belief police have been around for a very, very long time, and they're still at work. And if you're not careful, I might be one of them. So be on your guard. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at how Jesus dealt with the belief police. They were a big deal to him. They were constantly dogging his steps. They were constantly on at him. And of the sort of hundreds of ways I could talk about how Jesus deals with the people who want to put the primacy of belief over what he was trying to do, of the hundreds of ways I could tell you, I want to tell you just three of his stories that are of my favorite mechanism of his. That whenever the belief police get hot and heavy with Jesus, what Jesus has is an inappropriate woman completely interrupt the situation and in so doing, turn the situation into a situation of long word viscerality. It stops being cerebral and it starts being visceral. Let me give you a, see, the belief police can be on the inside and they can be on the outside. And so you've got to be on your guard as to who they are. The disciples, bless their little hearts, were prototypical belief police. They wanted to corral Jesus. They wanted to say, what do we need to believe, Jesus? When someone sins against us, what should we do? How many times should I forgive Jesus? How should I pray, Jesus? Which of us will be the greatest, by the way, Jesus? Something that occupied their minds quite a lot. And he had to tolerate this idea that they were trying to form something, and he was trying to free something. And so they go on a mission trip to Tyre. We never really get to find out what they were doing there, because it's obvious that in the in the gathering, and this gathering would have been a patriarchal gathering, the men would have been doing men's business to make sure that everything was straight and right. And obviously Jesus wasn't too fussed with what was happening because he orchestrated, and we believe he is capable of this, an interruption. And the interruption came in the form of an alien, a woman who therefore is an alien in a patriarchal society where the men are organizing everything and the men are in charge and women's values, women's input is not considered important. So she's an alien because she's a woman. She's an alien because she's, she's, she's sort of slightly non-white, sorry to say that in such a, such a brusque way, but the Jews were very xenophobic. And this woman was from, uh, it was a Canaanite or a Syrophoenician, so she was a, the wrong face and the wrong kind to be interrupting. And she was alien because the reason she was interrupting was because her daughter was possessed by a demon. And so clearly that life that she's bringing into the room has been brushing with the occult. And on those three things alone, she's unacceptable to the men who are there. And, of course, 
She's alien because she doesn't give a monkey's what these men are up to. She is shouting to Jesus over the top of what he's being told by all his male confederates, shouting to Jesus, if you're the son of David, you need to come and help me. And the disciples we know are fed up with her alienness. They don't like her interruption. They don't like her. And they say, Jesus, can you do something about this woman? She's just shouting at us all the time. And Jesus, whether he does it with his eyes or whether he does it with a gesture, responds in the negative to them, and he brings the woman into the center of the belief debate. And suddenly it gets very visceral. And Jesus does not let the xenophobia disappear. So the first part of the conversation is a conversation about race hate. And Jesus gets that off the table. And then what comes on the table is about who's acceptable and who isn't, who can be blessed by God and who can't. And because of this woman's candor, because of this woman's tenacity, because of this woman's daring to try and get something sorted for this horrible situation that's happening in her life, all of the belief in the theology and the stuff goes out the window, and Jesus focuses on that instead. And that's the story that's written in the Bible, not what the men were discussing. Because it was more important to the people who remembered that this visceral woman had interrupted everything, and Jesus had made a point. Do you want to know the point he made? He made a point that faith is expressed through love. Loving the quite unlovable, actually. Now, there are dozens of these stories. I'm only going to tell you two more. Jesus um, was invited by the belief police, whose names are various, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, people like that. He was invited by the belief police to come to dinner. Now, this was obviously not a low-key dinner. He was not there to talk about the weather. He was there to be dealt with. And they needed to say to Jesus, you need to get yourself straight, son. Are you on-site or are you off-site? Are you on-message or are you off-message? Are you on the page or are you off the page? Are you part of us? Are you for us or are you against us? Because we need to work something out. Because it could get hot and heavy and messy for you if we don't work this out. And Jesus is compliant. He comes to dinner. Jesus always went to dinner. And, and he sits there. And we're told a kind of snippet of the conversation. And in the conversation, what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to tell you a story, which is a very rabbinical thing to do. So he puts himself in the position of the rabbi, which might have put a few noses out of joint because there were a few potential rabbi-type people there. And then he tells them this really rubbish parable. He says, oh, there was these two people. One of them owed a lot of money to the king and one of them owed a little bit of money. Uh, and then neither of them could pay, so the king canceled both of the debts. Which one do you think would love him the more? And people are going, well, it's not exactly the brain's trust, is it, Jesus? I mean, if that's, if that's the best you can do as a rabbi, I'm not sure that you need to apply. And they dutifully answer the question. They say, well, grudgingly, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled would love them more. Then Jesus says five words to shut their faces. Five words to deal with the belief police. Five words to get to the heart of what is actually happening on this planet and why he is there. He says, do you see this woman? Because whilst it's all been going on, a woman, we would say in Scotland, of ill repute has come into the open gathering, public gathering, come into the gathering, and she has been kneeling at the feet of Jesus, and she has been weeping on his feet, and she has been wiping his feet with her long hair, and she has been pouring perfume on him, and every man in the place has ignored her or been offended by her. We know because we're told by the commentators of the inner mind of some of the people there, if this guy was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman it is that's touching him, and he wouldn't let her touch him, because she's a sinner. And Jesus says, Simon, 
something to tell you. Go ahead. Came in your house. You didn't do me the standard honorable things. You didn't let me wash my feet. This woman washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss of welcome. This woman's not stopped kissing my feet since she arrived. You didn't honor me in any way, and she has poured perfume on my feet. Because of her great love, her many sins are forgiven. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And sends her on her way. The visceral woman, the dirty woman, the wrong woman, interrupts the proceedings of the men. And Jesus says, this is what the gospel looks like. And you've got a long way to go, believe police, if you think we're just going to sort it out by a matter of policy and procedure. Not going to happen. So the belief police have had enough of this. They don't want this. And so they decide to raise the game a little bit. So when Jesus is teaching publicly, which is something that they don't like anyway, they drag, and the word is drag, they drag a woman. And they interrupt Jesus with a woman this time. And they throw her on the ground and they say, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses, the law of God, says we should stone such women to death. Now, what do you believe? What do you believe? With hate in their eyes and stones in their pockets, what do you believe, Jesus? Are you going to stand up for Moses? Because it's supposed to be about Moses. It's not supposed to be about you, you know? Are you going to stand up for the law? Because it's supposed to be about the law, not what you teach. Are you going to validate us and our beliefs at the cost of this woman's life, or are you not? What's your plan, Jesus? And Jesus says, let's stone her. All I need to step forward is the person in this gathering who has kept the law. Because we know the law, I'm paraphrasing, we know the law keeps us free from sin. So if there's any one of you here who has not sinned, who has followed the law, who embodies God, Come forward, throw a stone, we'll all join in. And the only person in the gathering who's got those credentials is the only person in the gathering not holding a stone. And they go ashamed of what they believe. And Jesus deals with the woman. He doesn't deal with her comfortably either. Where are your accusers? I'm not here to judge you. Now leave your life of sin. Jesus allows the visceral woman to be the epitome of the gospel expressed through love. Love opens the door to grace. That's how it works, says Jesus. And he embodies that. Every time the belief police are on him, he embodies that. And he doesn't just do it with women. He does it in lots of other ways. That's what I want to tell you. Faith expressed through love is visceral. It's real, and it has real lives attached to it. It's not theoretical. And I'm not going to do what you might think I would do at this point, which is say, well, let's identify who the belief police are in our lives and who's cutting in in our race and who's stopping us. I'm not going to do that. You need to work that out. Like I say, you need to work out if I'm one of them. Anyone who stands here is one of them. What I'm going to do is switch missiles. Um, projection people, if you uh, 
don't worry if it doesn't work, but I'll, could you put my wee thing on this? On the, I'll introduce it while it comes on. I'm now going to go into storytelling mode, but someone is going to tell me how long I've been talking for so that I know how much time I've got. Does anybody know? Does it feel long? I've done 20 minutes. Super, thanks, John. Right. Um, I run a, a counter-revolutionary movement in this church. I'm a facilitator of it. It's a Russian doll affair. We've got a, a mini church that we're experimenting with inside of our church. They're, they both know each other, and it's, it's called Sweet Generous. And people, and a small, a very small group of people are just experimenting with different ways to be church. One of the things that that group does is it has a higher challenge level than people would be comfortable with. And in this five-week period, uh, this ch- there's a challenge attached to this. We're challenging each other to pray more effectively. And this is the so what people in Sweet Generous are doing every day, hopefully is stopping at the threshold of their door or stopping at their steering wheel and praying these words and then getting on with their day. Dear Lord, please give me the opportunity to speak to, to respond to just one person today in a way that tells them something about you. And please give me the wisdom and the courage to do it. And I'm part of Sweet Generous. I'm, a, I'm an ordinary person in that, se- in that setting, so I've been doing this. So let me, t- let me tell you two stories. There are, se- there are several. There are, there's a story about some very buxom polka-dotted ladies who swim in the sea. I can't tell you that one. There is <laughs> there's a story about a very sweary man and his dog, uh, which for uh, propriety I can't tell you that one either, but mainly just time, because I would happily tell you both of those stories too. Let me tell you, tell you about Tesco. I prayed this prayer. I went to Tesco. I got my shopping and it was just as the heat wave was starting and Tesco, at Sh- I went to sh- the big one at Shirley thinking it would be quiet. It wasn't quiet. It was rammed. And so I was there, with my, my, we were going on a wee holiday and I was there with the holiday provisions, all the nice stuff that you're not usually allowed to buy at Tesco. Um, and I came around the corner and my heart sank because I could just see an ocean of people. You know, so, And I did what you should do in that circumstance, which is choose the first checkout and just stand there. It's not going to go any better than that. Just choose the first one and stand there. That'll, that'll be fine. And the guy in front of me was obviously going on an expedition or something because he had like 27 months of shopping. was piled up with <laughs> this thing. And I just thought, I'll wait. It's fine. I'll wait. And a voice behind me said, it's very busy in here today, isn't it? And a voice above me said, you're up. And I turned to meet an older lady. Her name was Trish. And I used the evangelical secret weapon that only super spiritual people need apply, secretist secret weapon in all Christian faith, the evangelism thing that they don't tell you about until you've got your evangelism passport and you've made 25 people Christians. Then they let you into an inner sanctum and then they give you this special gift. I engaged her in conversation. I spoke to Trish, and I found out a lot, a lot about Trish. I found out about um, she used to live in, in Arabia. Her husband was in the military, and, and then he, and he went, when he worked in the American military, and how, how things went there. And this was a long time ago, and what it was like back then. I heard about her three children who are stellar people. I mean, the, 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 the senior people in the health service and all that. And I thought, well, you must be. Very, you know, they want to say you must be very proud. That's the wrong thing to say. But I said, you must feel happy about that. And she always, my husband was such a gifted guy, and he really. He, he did that. I said, I'm sure you did something too, yeah, Trish. You know, 50% of their genetics belong to you. Um, and she was sort of cheered by that idea. And, 
Um, and we talked about her, and we talked about what was going on in her life. And we talked about the death of her husband. Um, and, you know, it was obvious that that was still a bit of a, as it would be, a bit of a thing. Um, and it, the 27 months of shopping had gone at this point, and so it was my turn to, and it's a wee bit hard to slide your broccoli over and still engage. And, 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 I, and I just took a risk. I just said, Trish, you've lived a, she was 81. I said, you've lived a very full life, you know, and you've got plenty left to give. I mean, have you thought about connecting with a church? Because you'd be a really good thing for a church, someone like you. And she said, oh, yes, well, I'm, I'm, you know, she was the governor of a church school and all that sort of stuff, but then she said that was very, getting very difficult. She was getting older. Things were getting harder. She said, I probably should find a local church. I said, Trish, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, this week, I'm just going to pray for you that you do find a church that is worthy of you. And she was just made up by that. And I thought, I'll get my shop and I'll go home. And God says, are you sure that's enough? I thought, that's probably not enough. So I turned over my, my shopping list and I said to the lady in the checker, because Trish's shopping's coming through now, you know, I said to the lady in the checker, just borrow your pen. And I wrote Trish a note. I said, here's my name, here's my number, this is the address of my church. We meet on a Sunday at 10.30. If you come in two weeks' time, I'll be speaking. You'd be most welcome. And I gave that to her. And she was double made up. And I blessed her and I went home. I just needed to be the divine for a second in another life. That's all I wanted. Time is upon us, and so I can't keep prattling. So I'm going to tell you a second story, which is a wee bit more complex and also a work in progress. I've seen this wee yellow and blue. I, I sometimes live in a place called Newcastle. It's a lovely place. And I've got a wee apartment there, which is by the beach, which is every bit as good as it sounds. <laughs> and I walk on the beach most mornings when I'm there. And I've seen this wee blue and yellow bin. And household bin, swing bin thing, standing on the beach. I've seen it for a whole year. It's been sitting there. And I thought maybe it was the surf people who were training, who public service put a bin on the beach, slap an advert on the side of it. That's what they're doing. It never really crossed my mind to look any further into what this wee bin was for. Um, and then I was walking on, walking on the beach, heat wave, a lot of people go to the beach. I'm trying to be dead spiritual, thinking about you this morning, praying for your life and my life, and walking on the beach with my toes in the sand and the surf coming over, and beer cans are washing up, and I'm trying to ignore them. Um, and I saw this lady, quite an athletic-looking lady, sh sort of shorts and a vest and very tanned, and she was humping two enormous bags full of plastic bottles and beer cans, and, and I thought, I've clocked that, that's okay. And I walked along the beach, and I said my prayers, and then I came back, and she was there, and God said, you're up. Because I'd prayed this before I left, you see. So I walked up to this lady, and I said, can I just say thank you? You're obviously cleaning up this beach, and this beach is really important to me. And, um, and thank you. And, then, and thus began an, an interaction with, with Tracy and with Rhea, spelled prayer without the P. Um, now, don't see me as naive. Don't think that I don't understand that there are a host of issues being introduced by the idea of the story that I was hearing, the story that I was hearing I received. Tracy is very evangelical, and she gave me several mini lectures about the ocean life and what rubbish does to it and about what's going on. But more interesting is Rhea, who is nine. Rhea is Lydia Tyndale 
on steroids. That's what Rhea is, because Rhea, at the age of three, had a vision from God about the polar bears and, and all, these, all these other creatures, and has been obsessed for six years with the ocean life and trying to preserve the ocean life. Rhea is homeschooled, this is maybe not come as a surprise, um, and so are her brothers. And Tracy, her mother, and Aaron, her, hus her, her husband, who's left the military and who's slightly struggling with the transition. I'm, give, I'm giving you a sense of the flavor. We talked, okay? We talked. Rhea spends five hours a day combing the beaches of Northumberland, taking the plastic off. She wants to be a marine biologist when she grows up. She makes these wee posters. I brought you one. Don't find me naive. There are issues. This is Rhea. She gives it to anyone who'll take it. And on the back, it says, it, there's a picture of her there and how she's saving the planet and she wants you to help her. She's come to the attention of David Attenborough. She's up for an award with the BBC. She's got thousands of Twitter followers. It's amazing. Let me leave it there. It's amazing. There are other things to say. Now, I'm going to be in, probably in conversation with Tracy and with Rhea more and more. But at the end of this, and, listen, and I was in listening mode, I was there for half an hour, and I said very little, and then anybody who knows me realizes that's quite a feat. I said, Tracy, I'm going to be preaching in the, in the church next week, and the good people of Alton Baptist Church would be delighted to pray for you, which is what you're going to have to do in a second, okay? We'd be delighted to pray for you. What can we pray? Right? And obviously, I'm pointing myself out as a bit of a weirdo, because I'm asking crazy Christian things and stuff, but... I was there. I was, I was, that's why I was there. And she said, oh, I don't know. And, and then it was oh, the ocean creatures and stuff. So you're going to have to pray for the ocean creatures, which is a good thing to pray for, so I'm not worried about that. But I pressed her. I said, well, I, 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 that's good. We'll pray for the ocean and, and, and the planet to get better. What about you? And I kid you not, in a, in a reaction that was unplanned, she said, oh, they could pray for me because I'm just a lost soul. And I, sa I said, kindly, kindly, what do you mean by that? And she backtracks. Oh, no, I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm just one of these great, I'm a Pisces, I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a bit crazy. This is how my life has been lived. I said, but you describe yourself as a lost soul. She said, but that's a good thing, you know, because I, I can rattle around in this world and all that sort of stuff. I don't care how Tracy justified what came out of her spirit. What came out of her spirit is that walking up and down the beach in Northumberland, trying to save the planet and trying to make her daughter into a hero like Greta Thunberg of the Oceans, is this woman who recognizes herself to be a lost soul. And as somebody prayed earlier, that's what we're in the business of. So you're going to pray for her. We're going to go one better. I've written them a card. It's got fish on it. Dear Tracy and Rhea, just a vote from the folks of Alton Baptist Church at Birmingham to say we prayed for you today, brackets, and would be happy to pray for you at any other time you need. Close brackets. Thank you for all that you do as an example to other people. Love, and then you get to sign it. Okay, so you get to sign it, anybody who wants to. I want to be the moment of the divine in the life of the other. Not in the mind of the other. Not in the idea of the other. Not in the, here's what I believe. 
here's what you, what you should believe. I'm going to evangelize you until you believe what I believe, and then my job will be done because it's all about belief. It's not about belief. It's about touching lives. It's about the idea that faith has its authenticity according to Jesus when it's expressed through love, and he lived that out every moment he was on the planet, and we still don't quite get the deal. We still don't quite work out that that's what he's after. Jesus doesn't care what you believe. Sorry to be a heretic. He doesn't care. Who did you love today is what he wants to ask you. Who did you love today? Did you love those who love you? That's a good start. Well done, because at least you're practicing love in a safe place. Did you love those who are outside of your group? Did, did you love the stranger? Did you love the other? That's good. That's great. That's good practice. Did you love someone that you're not supposed to love? Now we're getting somewhere. Did you love someone who throws it back in your face? Now it's starting to happen. Did you love the people who hate you? These are the laps in the race, says Jesus. I don't care what you believe. I want to know who you love. Belief's important. Sharing the faith is important. I'm sorry. Love's more important. It's just the way it is. And until we get a handle on the idea that our faith is only actually expressed in one verb, love, until we commit ourselves to trying to be the divine moment in the life of the other through trying to love them, through listening to them, through, through giving ourselves to them, not through berating them because they're going to hell or because they don't believe the right things, or not through trying to sell them a four-point gospel that we're never very sure is actually all that accurate compared to the Jesus that resides within us. I'm stopping. I've said enough. Jesus allowed love to interrupt because love opens the door to grace and he is the manifestation of grace and that is the gospel nothing else we are required to love amen